good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Let's turn together in the Word of God tonight to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Uh, for those of you perhaps who haven't been here in recent times, we have been uh, again engaging in this study in the Songs of Degrees. Um, we've paused at uh, the Psalm 133 for a few weeks, uh, the psalm that of course exalts and commends unity between the brethren, that which is good and that which is pleasant. And of course the ultimate sense of the word brethren there has to be referring to those who are spiritual brothers in Christ Jesus and therefore the commendation of unity in Psalm 133 should be expressed in the context of the local church and those who are brothers and sisters in the local church. And thus we thought it would be helpful to take some time and come aside and look at these words in Philippians chapter 2, um, which again deal with such clarity with the subject of the unity in the church of Christ. And so Philippians chapter 2 in the verse number 1, and the Word of God says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We've noticed here in Philippians chapter 1 and 2 that the subject of unity comes in the context of the exhortations of Paul for the church to engage in evangelism, to live as that becomes the gospel, verse 27 of chapter 1, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 2 and the verse 14, they are to do this without murmurings and disputings, so that, in verse 16, they can hold forth the Word, the Word of life, and the Word, of course, that teaches Christ to a lost world. The command I've mentioned before in verse number 2 is the command to fulfill the joy of the Apostle, but they are to do that by being like-minded. And thus it is an implied command. Paul's implying the command to them that they should be like-minded. And we've come to the point of trying to define that term. What is it to be like-minded? And last week when we met together, we thought about what it does not mean. Uh, definitions are often helpful when you think about what they don't mean before you then begin to what they do mean. Uh, unity is not to be promoted at the expense of diversity. 
We have diversity of backgrounds, diversity of opinions, diversity of, of gifts and graces. Uh, those are natural. Those diversities are built into the church of Christ. And unity does not mean that we're all the same or have the same opinions on every single issue. Uh, there are issues that we can, uh, we can have differences over uh, without those issues bringing to division in the church. Unity should also not be promoted at the expense of purity. And again, some would suggest that if a church practices church discipline, well, then they're, uh, they're dividing the church. They're removing people from church membership, for example, and surely that is not promoting unity. But church unity is in the context of purity. And therefore, when there is impurity in the church, then those who profess to be brothers may at times be put out, even though they call themselves brothers. We saw verses that spoke of that uh, last week also. Unity is also not to be promoted at the expense of orthodoxy. Again, we live in a, in a day and a spirit of the age is that the Christian church should be, should be unified and all who name the name Christ to some degree, they should all come together in some sort of corporate unity. But unity must be in truth. And there is no true unity when there is no agreement on truth. And so those are things that we must think about in terms of the negative. Now, unity does not remove these things. But then what is it to be like-minded? Well, the word is given to us here in verse number two. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. And the word literally means that they are to think on the same things. And that's the, the literal sense of the word, like-minded. You can see the, uh, the compound words there in the English, like and mind. And again, similar in the, in the original, there's that idea of, of thinking on the same things. But of course, uh, that does not really fully uh, begin to define what it is to know Christian unity. Over in Romans chapter 15, the word is used in verse number 5. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, you see a sense of oneness here. Like-minded is expressed with this one mind and one mouth glorifying God. And thus, again, this like-mindedness doesn't deny diversity. It doesn't ignore sin. It doesn't ignore truth and error. But it is a, a oneness in the church of Christ. Now, there is one foundation, if you like, one love, one faith, one purpose. All these various terms that can be used to define our oneness. Again, literally, it speaks of having one heart, one soul, and one mind. You know the words that are used there, being of one accord, of one mind, and then the first one, having the same love. And thus, this is an intensely spiritual unity. It's not an artificial thing. To have the same love, to be of one accord, literally have the same soul, and of one mind is not something you can manufacture. It doesn't come because you're all from the same place, because that's not true for us, is it? This unity does not come because uh, we all have the, uh, the same genetic makeup, if you like. No, there's diversity in this. This is not a natural thing. It's not something that can be, uh, can be manufactured either. It is something that is spiritual, as God works in the hearts of his people. So, so note this unity of affection. He says, having the same love. United in our love for Christ. Christian unity 
always increases as our love for Christ increases. It is as we love Christ more, and so we see Christ in each other more, so we are drawn together in Christian unity. The importance of having our hearts in the right place. And again, so often when you see division and disunity in the church, there has been a preceding spiritual coldness. There's been a dullness in the worship of God. There's been a lack of fervency in prayer. The prayer meeting has dwindled away to nothing because people do not want to meet their Savior. And there's been a coldness of spirit. And as that coldness of spirit has, has built and built and built, then suddenly, but it's not sudden, suddenly there's a vision. But the vision was coming for some time because there had been a coldness and love for Christ. The same love, being of one accord. Again, the word literally means having the same soul. It may well speak of having the soul born again with the Spirit, and therefore a soul that is committed to Christ by faith. One mind is also mentioned here, of one mind. Now, it would be very easy here, at this point, to look at this one mind and think that this one mind is a mind that is devoted to truth. Uh, we so often think of the mind in terms of the understanding of truth. Now, I've already said very clearly last week and this week that true unity does not dispense with truth. But the mind that is mentioned here must be governed by the context in which we find it. This one mind is then explained to us in the verses that follow. And you see what he says. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, verse 3, but in lowliness of mind. And then verse number five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And as it seems to be, at least in my mind, that the word mind in verse number two is then expanded on in what follows. He's been to, he's been to open up what it means to have this one mind. And it's a one-mindedness that does begin in truth, but goes beyond truth. Yes, we should agree on the fundamental doctrines. That is given and taken for granted. But the one-mindedness here, I believe, is a one-mindedness in the mind of humility. The mind of orthodoxy is taken for granted. The mind that agrees on truth, I think, is just presumed to be here. But Paul is making the point that for the Christian church to be unified, they must be of one mind, and that mind is a lowly mind. We may, we may agree on what we believe, and yet not of true unity. If we think true unity exists because we all agree to the same confession of faith, we are not, we're not in the right lines according to the Word of God. There has often been the time when there's been division and disunity in a church among people who believe the same doctrines. And so you can have the same doctrines, but not have this one mind that Paul mentions in Philippians chapter 2. And thus, if we are going to define like-mindedness, we must see it in terms of the humility that is required for Christian unity. And so we have verses 3 and 4. There are two verses, each with a negative and a positive. Don't be like this, but be like this. And there are three things I want to note with you tonight regarding this matter of, of humility uh, as that which is required for Christian unity. And the first thing is this. Humility shuns personal promotion. Uh, 
Humility shuns personal promotion. If true unity is expressed in humility, then it makes sense that you will not have unity when you have a desire for personal promotion. And Paul says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Look not every man on his own things. With true humility, there is a shunning of personal promotion. Unity, it involves community. And therefore, humility, shunning individuality, promotes community. Hope you see that. What is pride? Pride is an exertion of your individuality. Community shuns individuality. And so humility, shunning individuality, is vital for the promotion of community. Humility says no to strife. Let nothing be done through strife. The words used uh, over in verse number 16 of chapter 1, the one preached Christ of contention. Same word, this idea of contention or strife. Uh, there ought not to be contention and strife in the church of Christ. This contention, of course, was seen in Corinth. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 11, it says, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. And those contentions arose because there have been developing in the church various cliques. Various groupings in the church. I am of Paul, I have Apollos, I have Cephas, and even one that was of Christ. And these four groups had gathered. I don't know how they, they met in Corinth. I, I don't know uh, what their structure was. I, I doubt they had pews like this. Uh, but wherever they met, you could almost uh, imagine that when they came through the door of the house, well, the Apollos group went to one corner. And the Paul group to another corner, the Cephas group to another corner, the Christ group, they went to the fourth corner. And these four groups, oh, they were all together. They were very unified. They enjoyed unity in their clique. But there was no true unity because the four cliques had divided the church. And the result of that was, as Paul used the word in verse 11, there are contentions. Contentions among you. Is such a thing serious? It is terribly serious. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and the verse 19. And you'll see the works of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And you get the adultery and the fornication and all those sort of things. But then you get strife, verse 20. Strife, seditions, and heresies. The strife in Corinth was around personality. And so much so that Paul would say to the people in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that they were behaving in a carnal fashion, behaving in the flesh. Thus they were performing what? The works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. The works of the flesh, one of which is strife. Now in Corinth there was around personalities. But there are a number of things in a church that can involve the church dividing into various cliques and groupings. And that should always be greatly discouraged. Humility fears and says no to strife. Humility says no to vain glory. Let nothing be done, uh, Philippians chapter 2 again, through strife or vain glory. This idea of vain glory is the idea of prominence. 
And the word can be defined as, as seeking preeminence, having honor and esteem and the popular applause from men. Again, you get the idea of the word from, again, Paul's usage in Galatians chapter 5 again, verse 26, where he says this, Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. You see, this idea of preeminence is a provoking thing. The word provoking there actually in its derivation speaks of calling toward oneself. Self-exaltation, which provokes displeasure in others. It provokes such a vainglorying spirit also is envious of another. And so if you've got somebody who's vainglorying, somebody who desires preeminence, what does it do? It provokes some in the church, it envies others in the church, and what happens is it splits the church apart. And thus, humility says no to vainglory. Humility says no to selfishness. Look not every man on his own things. It could be said, look not every man only on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's the sense of the words. Because, of course, we are to look after our own things. We're to look after our, uh, our, uh, our families. We're to look after our own occupations or our health. We're to look after our souls. We're to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. There's a, a right place for self-love. The humble man does not have a preoccupation with himself to the neglect of others. It's not the sense of my way for my good and no matter about everyone else. Humility doesn't do that. It's interesting, the other card traits you notice with humility in the Word of God, and I, uh, I don't have time to expand on too much now, but let me just read some verses for you. Uh, Acts 20 and the verse 19 says this, Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears. There's the humble spirit, a spirit that's accompanied with, with tears. Or you've got Ephesians chapter 4 and the verse number 2, With all lowliness and meekness with long suffering." forbearing one another in love. This lowliness comes with a meek spirit, a, a, a long-suffering, patient spirit. Or Colossians chapter 3 and the verse number 12, where again we see a, another grouping with this idea of, of lowliness and humility. Colossians 3, 12, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. You see, if we are to enjoy and preserve unity, we must seek to put on these graces. Again, when you trace back divisions, when there are divisions, there will always somewhere along the line be the rising of pride in individuals' hearts. It is absolutely always the case. There is no division where there is not pride in some party's heart. And thus it is our corporate duty to ensure that all of us do all that we can to preserve a humble spirit and a lowly spirit and do not ever allow the, the seeds of pride to grow in our souls. Humility shuns personal promotion. Humility also desires the well-being of others. Again, verse 4 says, Look not every man in his own things, but every man also in the things of others. And then verse 3 says, In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. A humble man counts others better. This is not teaching deception. 
where if you have more gifts than someone else, you pretend you don't. Perhaps it may be a, a gift of, of help, so, uh, perhaps a gift of understanding, or whatever it might be. You, you, you may well have, a, have gifts that excel your brothers and sisters in Christ. You may be further along the road of maturity. You may be more advanced in your, in your level of sanctification. It's not suggesting you pretend. What it is suggesting is that you will think the best of others until there is clear evidence to the contrary. I always marvel at Judas. Whenever Christ said that someone would betray him, the disciples did not all turn around saying, hey, it's going to be Judas, just you wait and see. And that was not because Judas was keeping things hidden. Already we had seen in Judas a spirit that resented the perfume being poured upon the Savior. The Spirit was there. There was already evidence in the one who held the bag. But I believe the other disciples knew their own hearts also. And having an awareness of their own hearts, they were slow to judge the hearts of others. And that's, I think, at least in part, something was involved by esteeming others better than themselves. It's putting others first. Having their, the thoughts of them in the highest place. And therefore, having an interest in their needs, desiring their things, desiring that they would know promotion. Not our promotion, but the, the well-being of others. What do they need? How can I meet those needs? How can I pray for them? How can I encourage them? How can I rebuke them if required? How can I serve them practically? You know, we may say we are humble people. We may say we are lowly of heart. But the humble heart is always expressed in a certain way. You see, what do we find? When you get every Christian grace, there is outward effects of that grace. You take the grace of faith. Someone who is strong in faith, what will they do? They'll be strong in prayer. But someone who is strong in humility, what will they be? They will not be walking around the church with their head down. They will not be having some cloak of humility where people will look at them and say, that's a very humble person. No, the humble person in the church will be the one who will be busy with the desire to know and attend to the needs of others. Because they're not so self-absorbed. The false humility is a horrible thing to see. Where someone is so concerned about how they look to others that they walk about with their heads down with a pretense of humility. The truly humble person has a desire to promote others at the expense of themselves. And this humility, of course, will only be truly understood or truly experienced when we again remind ourselves continually of the grace of God and the gospel. Remembering our hearts the inherent depravity of our souls and the grace of God in Christ who came though we were undeserving, who came and rescued us and delivered us from the darkness of sin. And when we are convinced of that, then there's a deep seed of humility which then flows out in a burden for the well-being of others. You see, this humility shuns personal promotion. It desires the well-being of others. And finally, it follows the example of Christ. Let this mind, verse 5, be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. 
And the Apostle Paul, he brings us to the contemplation of our Savior. Whenever there is pride, there is a lack of Christ-likeness. For in Christ we see the perfect example and paradigm of a humble man. He was in the very form of God. But as the eternal Son of God, he willingly makes himself of no reputation. He humbles himself, verse number 8. Not by emptying himself of his deity, as some would teach, but he humbles himself by taking an additional form. The one who was in the very form of God now comes in the form of a servant, a humble servant, made in the likeness of men, whereby he comes and lives and dies for our sins. What do we see here? We see one who in true humility sacrifices self-promotion for the well-being of others, namely those he came to save. And so when the Christian succumbs to pride, they have forgotten the accomplishment of the gospel in Christ Jesus. They have forgotten what the Savior did. He who was rich was made poor. They forget the humility of Christ. Or else they forget the application of the gospel. And they forget that we're only sinners saved by grace. Saved by grace alone. This my only plea. And so whenever we see pride within our souls, and I suspect if you're like me, we sadly see it far too often. And we see pride within our souls or within our actions. We must get back to the fundamental truths of the gospel. Who is Christ? What has he done? Who am I? What did I deserve? And what have I received? Through Christ's perfect, wonderful love. It is a good and a pleasant thing for brethren to dwell together in unity. And may God be pleased to so work in our hearts that we would do all we can to preserve it. I said a few weeks ago, I am not aware of any trouble in the midst of the church. I am not aware, to the best of my knowledge, of things coming around the corner. But we've come to Psalm 133. And it's been good to hit the bricks and just to consider the importance of this subject and that we would know the blessing of unity and harmony and then productivity in the work of God for Christ's sake. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.